Welcome to Startup Knockout. I'm your host, Timo Higgs. Today on Startup Knockout, we have Eric Viva from SpinLab HHL Accelerator in Leipzig. SpinLab might just be Germany's top accelerator. In fact, it was the only one on UBI's top European accelerator index this year from Germany. Not bad. Now, Eric is going to share with us how they do it and how you as a startup can get into their exclusive program, plus a bonus. At SpinLab, Eric has created eight personas of founders that often fail, which is kind of a tongue-in-cheek, stereotypical look at how you can avoid failure as a startup founder. And he and I are going to dive into two of them. I'm really excited about this. Eric, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for inviting me, Timo. And we're going to get into SpinLab right away because this is a really interesting topic that you have been consistently at the top of rankings, European, even worldwide, for a great many years. Tell us a little bit about what is SpinLab's secret sauce. Well, I think that uh, starting eight years ago, we were ahead of the market. So we started quite early. When, when we started, I had around 20 comparable activities in my competitor list, more or less. Uh, so nowadays, uh, I would say it's more than 200 in Germany. Um, so we were ahead of times and uh, luckily uh, we really had great startups from the very beginning um, that were quite successful and this helped us actually to um, build the trust into the brand and um, the reputation of the brand. And at a certain point of time, you can also say it's kind of getting a self-fulfilling prophecy uh, because uh, then you get, again, better startups and better startups, but also with these rankings. Uh, if you are good in one ranking, the likelihood that uh, the authors also checked other rankings is quite high um, and uh, that you are the next time again good in the ranking is also quite high. So it's both. It's um, doing the things you do in a good way. Um, but uh, also using this dynamics in between um, and uh, yeah, keep continuing these things that were good. Yeah, so it sounds like you benefited a certain amount from the, the first mover advantage, but you kind of kept that going by having such a great network that more talent just comes to you because now you've become kind of the name in startup accelerators. Um, I'm wondering... How exactly do you measure your success? Like, how do you know if you are moving forward, regardless of whether it, it is success compared to other accelerators? How do you make sure that you guys are always doing better all the time? Yeah, for us, it's very important that we um, have a in alignment of our interests with the startups. So what we measure for us should be something that really is important to the startups as well and to the founders. So I think first of all, no one wants to fail in general um, or if they fail i mean failure is a part of being an entrepreneur it's very important and it can always be outcome but it's nothing desired um, so one thing we measure for example is the survival rate of our startups uh, which is around 80 to 85 percent um, which is quite high at the end um, and uh, it's not only that they or the startups that they participate in our program. Um, I mean, they are pre-selected, they get additional support, so they should beat the market. Um, but it also shows that, well, in a, in a lot of cases, we are able to adapt together with them. 
to the market and uh, help them to pivot, for example, or to adapt um, or identify and adapt the relevant things into the, their business models um, so that the survival rate increases. A second thing that we measure is venture capital. I'm not the one who says that venture capital is the one and only thing to achieve, and it's not a goal itself. For me, venture capital is an instrument um, to build a company, to build a startup, um, something that is often needed to pre-finance something, um, but it's not the goal. So if you look at startup media, sometimes it seems getting as much venture capital as possible is the goal of a startup, but it isn't from my perspective. For me, it's always an instrument, but we measure this as well. Um, so in total, it were more than 200 million that the startups uh, collected, uh, which means on average, roughly 1.5 million um, that startups received that we, we supported, uh, including also some public grants. And the third thing we measure is uh, the jobs created by our startups because that's also an indicator of growth somehow. Sure. And that's definitely something you can use in conversation with other stakeholders, government. That's, uh, that's certainly a big plus. And I, I like that you, I like your approach to the venture capital measurement because I think a lot of people nowadays, they get a little bit kind of squeamish, a little queasy when people say, well, we raised this much. Like, well, that's not an indicator of success necessarily, but it is because it means that you're getting experts thinking that your business is actually viable. So I think you're right that it should not be the only indicator of success, but it should definitely be taken into consideration. Yeah, I think that's a very important point. It, it, it has a relevance in the market, definitely, um, but it's not all. And there were a lot of startups that received millions and millions of venture capital, um, but never succeeded with revenue at all. And so you see at the end, um, maybe collecting as much venture capital as possible is even not something which decreases your risk of failure. So from my perspective, it's actually something which increases the risk of uh, failure. Um, because from, from my perspective, venture capitalists uh, will, especially in the early stages, will, will always force you um, to use that money to grow, getting more people there, creating traction and revenue and so on, but they don't want you to be profitable. So even if you say, okay, I'm, I'm coming closer to profitability, uh, they will say, okay, now let's raise the next round to grow even faster. Um, and that's the right perspective for the venture capitalists. Um, and we are also running a fund and there we would also like to see this, this hyper growth. Um, but at the end, it increases um, for the entrepreneur even a bit the likelihood of uh, getting insolvency um, because maybe you are at a certain point of time not able to raise uh, additional financing round. And then you, you created a, a bunch of costs as well to, to generate this hyper growth, you know? Yeah, that is that is a very interesting perspective. I've never heard it put in those terms before that it can actually increase the likelihood of failure. And for the reasons you just stated, uh, I think we'll have to all kind of keep an eye on how that develops, especially as things are changing in this high interest environment where, um, you know, revenue growth is now being prized by investors before they invest. If they then switch after they've got their investment locked up, 
that then they want growth. Yeah, definitely growth, but also growth in revenue and so on. But uh, usually you will you will increase your cost base as well. And the venture capitalists, some of them at least, they are even not happy if, if the company is profitable because it means um, it's it could grow maybe even faster. I, I imagine the philosophy around managing your burn rate will look very different in the next six months, 12 months, 18 months, depending on what happens in the investment community. Uh, but I want to turn back to, to SpinLab because one thing that is really interesting about you guys is you've created a number of offshoot organizations. So like RootCamp, BitRoad, Smart Infrastructure Ventures, your VC arm. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about uh, about RootCamp and BitRoad mm -hmm. because these they don't fall necessarily under SpinLab, but I guess they are daughter companies of SpinLab? So the, the basic idea is that we will expand with, with new topics um, that have synergies to the topics we cover in Leipzig. So in Leipzig, we do energy, smart city, and health. Um, and uh, that's why we, we do see synergies with RootCamp, which is our program in Hanover, um, where we cover agriculture and bioeconomy. And of course, those, those topics are interconnected somehow. So most of the farmers, they have bio, or many farmers at least have biogas or PV, uh, which is actually electricity production um, or even methane or uh, some sometimes biogas or other gases are byproducts of uh, processes in uh, the agricultural industry or sometimes even needed uh, to produce fertilizers and, and so on and so forth. So there's a clear um, synergy of the corporates that work with us um, on different markets, uh, but also on the startup side. And this is what we wanted to, to generate. And I think it, it really works. So also in terms of, of uh, the network, but uh, at the same time, also in terms of the, um, the deal flow we see and the startups and how we can support them. And on the other side, um, I think that we should also grow this further um, with uh, additional topics uh, on different locations that we're going to cover in the future, hopefully. And besides that, we have seen that many of our partners um, say, okay, uh, you help us identifying startups and uh, planning startup collaborations. But see, I have this problem in my, in my organization. It's somehow related to strategy or innovation, but it's not exactly what you do. Um, but we do think that you have an expertise in this. Can you help us with that? Mm, and then it, when, at this point, it, it got complicated um, because in the accelerators, we, we have a couple of people, we have a couple of resources and know-how, um, but uh, it's allocated somehow. Um, and that's why we uh, bought a small consultancy boutique called BitRoad. Um, that uh, helps us uh, to have these free capacities or these more flexible capacities uh, working on more individual projects with, with those partners um, and companies that are not our partners or not our partners yet. But That's a very interesting inroad, uh, kind of insightful how you would have been able to identify those synergies. So if I, if I understood it correctly, with, with RootCamp, with your agribusiness um, accelerator or, or like daughter accelerator. So you were already working with farmers because they were in contact with energy startups and energy partners 
So it was an easy inroad for you with agribusiness startups. And you thought, well, we're already talking to these people and they have other needs and we can help them with those other needs. Yeah. And even, even the, like the original idea and the original input, how we created or how we came into contact to, uh, to the root camp idea. Uh, was that one of our partners, the VNG Group, in, in, um, located in Leipzig, and one of our core partners and strategic partners at SpinLab, um, they have gas storages. Um, and gas storages are usually in like below ground in all uh, salt stocks. Um, and uh, our main partner, or our biggest partner in Hanover, in RootCamp, is K-plus-S. And uh, what they do is they produce salt and fertilizers um, out of salt stocks. So even even that became somehow obvious and uh, is, a, is a very obvious synergy. It seems like an easy win, but you'd really have to be paying attention to be like, there's an opportunity there. Uh, now, last last question for you. Actually, this is not the last question. I have two more questions for you. So uh, one thing I've noticed about SpinLab is you've been promoting diversity a lot. You've been doing recruiting in diversity. You're doing events in uh, diversity. So tell us a little bit more about that. How did that come about? What's the goal? How is it going so far? Yeah, especially in Germany, we can see a lack of diversity in general in the startup ecosystem. Um, it means for me also gender diversity, but not only gender diversity, I would also say the international backgrounds, the religious backgrounds, and uh, also different age groups uh, have to be better included into the startup ecosystem. Um, and um, that's why we created a diversity team within our company um, that tries to identify concrete activities that we can do to foster um, diversity within our team um, and within our processes, uh, but also outside. Um, so that's why we created this amazing uh, diversity summer school we do together uh, with HHL, like the business school we are generally working close with. And um, there we try to identify startups with diverse backgrounds. Um, that um, come from can cover all the industries you can imagine um, because with the spin lab program it's quite competitive to come in uh, we only have two percent of all the applicants we get into our, or accept to our programs um, and then we have this industry focus energy smart city health and so on and there are a lot of um, other companies um, that we want to support we but we don't have the processes, instruments, and capacities. And we thought, okay, if we want to support additional startups somehow, uh, where could we have the biggest value and where could, where, where should we put our focus on? And so uh, the idea was uh, to create a diversity summer school because in that field, um, we see the highest need to, to be engaged. So the last question that I had for you dovetails nicely into what you were just saying about SpinLab being such a competitive environment to get into. So for any listeners out there who are thinking about applying to SpinLab or really any accelerator, what are maybe a couple of tips for them, things that they should absolutely have before they even think about applying to an accelerator or to SpinLab? Yeah. 
I think it's very important uh, that they can also show how the accelerator um, also benefits from that company because either it will be very successful um, and it's a no-brainer. Um, so this is about market growth, growth potential, the strengths of the team, and any other decision like a classical VC would also, um, or any other argument a classical VC would also want to see. Um, but the second thing, usually these um, companies has certain stakeholders. So in our environment, in SpinLab, uh, these are mainly corporate partners. Others are mainly financed, for example, by the public sector um, or other opportunities. And you should think about, okay, what are these stakeholders willing to see? So for us, it's okay. I want to know from a startup how they can collaborate with our corporate partners. So if startups think about uh, how could a corporation look like, for example, with AOK+, Plus, uh, which is a very big health insurance, um, how, how can we work with them? What could be a potential collaboration with them? How can we work with other partners that SpinLab has in the um, health sector, for example, the university clinics of uh, Leipzig or, or um, the German Red Cross? Um, so how can we work with those? Uh, what can we offer to them? Uh, this would be very interesting and would uh, change maybe the, the way we think uh, about an application. And it also shows that you have taken your time to do your due diligence as a founder. Makes sense. Okay, um, I want to move on to something very special about SpinLab and about you. Something you created that I find really very useful and uh, <laughs> kind of hits me in, in the gut, actually, when I noticed <laughs> that one of these personas that you created about why startups fail... I saw myself in a couple of these, in particular the the Paul Parallel one, but uh, I, I think my listeners are going to benefit from two of them. There are eight, and we're going to link out to them, so check the show notes for that. And for anybody who's just listening, um, do go and check out the video on YouTube so that you can actually see these, because uh, <laughs> you, you'll understand when you see it. Um, so the first one I wanted to talk about was Harry Hustler. So Harry... Um, maybe you can give us a brief description of what makes Harry the Hustler, Harry the Hustler. Harry the Hustler is someone we frequently see. Um, maybe it's because we are also very close uh, to, um, uh, to a business school, a private business school. <laughs> and uh, Harry Hustler is someone uh, who is really ambitious, uh, but... Um, uh, he really wants to get successful in, in a way, and he's very motivated, um, but he's doing too much things at the same time. And he's, he's always telling. So this is the basic characteristics, I would say. So this is the classic type A personality of somebody fresh out of business school. They've got lots of ideas, lots of ambition. Uh, but what is the one thing, do you think, that tends to make Harry fail? Because these are personas of of founders that tend to fail yeah you know these kind of persons they they are very mm, confident and have a very high self-esteem and they want to show off and they want to show themselves off um so 
for example, that's why I also said, okay, previous job, uh, he, he did his first startup and of course it was exited. Um, but typically if you then ask a bit more, okay, well, how was it sold? Who, who bought it? What was the, the volume and so on? You can see, hmm, well, well, there was no money related to it or only small amounts and it was like a emergency exit. Uh, or th these people, they come from the best uh, business schools and universities and they really like to show off. Um, and these are, by the way, often the guys in LinkedIn, uh, they, they have the um, Harvard Business School in, as a certificate somehow uh, because they did the MOOC there. <laughs> and uh, these are these things, you know, these small things where they just want to show off. But the more investors uh, investigate and the more the investors uh, deep dive into this, um, they, they recognize, okay, this guy is just overselling. Um, so it creates a feeling of mistrust. So where is it right? Where is it wrong? Maybe you recognize he said he studied at Harvard Business School, but at the end it turned out to be a MOOC. Uh, he said, okay, three VCs are already committed, uh, but he's not able to tell you which ones uh, and you don't know any who's interested. Um, and, uh, you know, they say there's a huge demand on the market, there's a waiting list and so on. And then you ask, oh, can you send me the waiting list? Who's on it? What's nothing on it, you know? And uh, things like these, so this this overconfidence, um, it's, a, it's a real problem. Um, also the things like, you know, they are below 30, but they have two startups exited and they have uh, experience in each and every industry. They are Forbes 30 under 30. Uh, everything, you know, uh, would have been enough for, for the lifetime uh, of uh, 10 people 10 years ago, you know, but now it's only at one person and this is, uh, this is the overselling aspect I, I see. And uh, latest in a due diligence, um, this breaks up because investors gonna dig deeper they're gonna ask the critical questions they're gonna try to identify the things uh, that that have these discrepancies and want to solve them for themselves um and latest at this point um yeah it tends to break up yes uh, the, the, the whole overselling so you have a small grain of truth but they turn it into something massive and yeah truth will out eventually. So I, I guess, I guess in a word, it's being disingenuous, not really representing the whole truth. Um, yeah. Also on the investor field, um, sometimes uh, there are some investors who, who might get influenced by it. Um, but if you felt like very professional um, decisions based on a, on a very rational due diligence, um, in these cases, uh, it will usually break up. Okay, let's move on to the next one, and that's Enus Impact. So give us a quick summary of who Enus Impact is. Well, Enus is that kind of person that everyone likes, actually. So she's, she has a very happy mindset. She's, uh, uh, she's in the middle of her life, you know, she's... Uh, uh, very lively and, and goes out and friendly and so on. So actually you would like to spend time with, with that kind of person. Um, and uh, this is why uh, she's also very engaged in, in, in terms of social engagements, uh, a lot of friends, but uh, also for society, 
uh, maybe worked as a fundraiser at an NGO or is part of a party of a political party, uh, usually something more left-winged, uh, and uh, so someone who is really in the community and society. Yeah, and actually, I think society needs that kind of people. So these people that uh, really bring forward society um, in terms of yeah, social aspects we need, uh, in terms of sustainability aspects, uh, society really needs uh, not only environmental, but also social aspects. Um, so, um, yeah, I think that these kind of people are really needed on the one side um, and they have a super high intrinsic motivation to, to change things, to, to make things better, to, to share success, um, to yeah, progress as a society. Um, but sometimes this has the weakness um, that uh, it's simply too much idealism. It's uh, simply maybe not compatible to um, the real world as it is right now. Um, so it's, it's too much um, of these wishes and uh, of this idealistic case. Um, and sometimes reality is a little bit more gray than it uh, should be. And uh, also these, these people frequently have are not that down to earth, you know, they are good sellers of a vision and they are not, uh, but they are not really number crunchers who want to dig into the details. Um, and the problem is that, you know, they, they, they stand for a, a share of society or a part of society, which is really progressive, um, which is kind of an early adapter or a super early adapter of, of things. Um, but they don't reflect that the majority of people um, is still behind this and more conservative. Um, as you can see on, 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 on different aspects. So if you look at the, the results uh, of political roads, I mean, there's a significant conservative part of uh, the population. Uh, sometimes it seems it's even growing uh, at the moment, um, but uh, I don't want to be uh, like now with the uh, political co uh, commentator here, but um, it's just that uh, sometimes the market for these products and services these people develop is much smaller than they expect because they think everyone should think like this. And I would agree everyone should think like this, um, bringing forward society and having more idealism. Um, but at the end, the world is as it is. Uh, and a lot of people are um, yeah, looking into their own world. Um, they are more like they, they see what's in for me personally and not so much what does um, society need and what's my individual um yeah, what's my individual value for this? So how do I benefit individually and not so much uh, from the societal perspective? Uh, I've heard it said that the best founders are those that have a perfect blend of idealism and realism, yeah. that they're going to get down to work and really get into the details, but they have this idealism in them that makes them want to change something in the world. Yeah. 
And I, I really love the line that you have in the persona here that um, she doesn't understand why everyone doesn't think like her. There's this yeah. too much idealism where you just can't get it. You can't get inside the head of your customers. Um, now, I'm curious, we're, we're seeing kind of an explosion right now of impact startups. There's there's a lot of impact startups um, being created right now. Uh, are you seeing a fair few of them with Enos Impact type people as founders? Or is the impact startup now sort of becoming more populated by realists, that people who are more ready to get down to work? Well, you always have to see that these personas are very um, stereotypical. Um, and um, I do see it, and I think it's very good that we have an increase of uh, impact startups or startups that work towards more sustainability. Um, and also here we maybe have to make a, a small differentiation um, in, so I think there are a lot of, or even the majority of impact startups, uh, there are also startups that uh, work with sustainability or towards more sustainability, um, but not necessarily the other way around. Not all the startups that are sustainability startups in a way, um, necessarily would describe themselves as impact startups. Um, because still um, there's a kind of prejudice uh, around this impact term um, where a lot of people think, okay, um, the higher impact comes at the cost of like lower interest or profit. Um, that's not necessarily the case from my individual perspective, but I think that still in the investor community and also the, the startup community itself, they, um, also general in, in society there, there might be a bias like this and there are great startups that are 100% commercial they want to really increase um, the, the profits and uh, want to really get big successful uh, business cases uh, but works towards sustainability because especially in clean tech and so on it really gets a deal nowadays and uh, a lot of investors are now doing a lot in these sectors. So uh, even the ones who um, financed all these e-commerce and fintech cases in the past now say, oh, oh we, we, we are working uh, on new topics and uh, even deep tech and hardware startups are now not, not sorted out directly like in the past. So um, there's a lot of development in that sector, but I would not necessarily mix up sustainability and impact or um, do not say that it, it is the same. So with impact, I would still think that you have a higher weighting uh, of social aspects um, compared to um, profitability aspects. And this is totally fine. Um, and there are specialized impact investors uh, that, that support it. And from societal point of view, I would even encourage this. Um, but uh, not necessarily all the sustainability startups are working only towards impact because for them individually or as an organization, uh, profitability and business success uh, might still be the major driver. And I guess over the last what, 40, 50 years, 
the face of environmentalism and social impact have really been changing. They've, they've really turned into big business. So obviously that's going to change the type of person who's going to want to get into it. But Definitely. I'm sure there's still a, there's still a fair share of idealism that pushes this forward. And it also puts the, puts like the traditional companies under pressure. Um, so, you know, there were, were all these, um, unwrapped uh, stores, retail stores, where you could buy the things uh, without packaging. Um, and even if, if they were not a big, huge commercial um, and, 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 and business success, um, because it was very, or it still is a very fragmented market and uh, a lot of individual store chains with these unpacked uh, stores and so on. Um, but I think it, it just was a very strong message to the traditional supermarkets um, that there's a kind of demand for, for less wrapping and less plastics and so on. Um, and yeah, so they, they're going to change slowly, very slowly, and maybe not, not fast enough. Um, but I think that they recognize these changes. So they... They recognize that they have to do something um, and it create that there's a certain demand for this. The same holds true for region consumption and so on. So there, there are a lot of different movements, I would say, that are um, created by very small, at the very beginning, um, very small group of people. And this is, this is, this is something which... Uh, can bring forward society. This is also why we need this kind of um, idealism. Um, but sometimes it needs that realism and this down-to-earth, handcrafted approach, I would say, to really make these things big. And at the end, they can even have a higher impact when they are big. Now, last question about these personas. I'm curious, uh, how do you use these at SpinLab? Do you actually use them with the startups that come through your your program? Or was this more of just like a, a lighthearted, something interesting, something to make you think, but not really that actionable? At SpinLab, um, we support startups and entrepreneurs very individually. So each startup has a coach that guides them through the six months. Um, it's uh, typically experienced entrepreneurs that, um, that have sold their companies and now want to give back or as, um, in investors um, that worked for funds before um, and um, want to share their experiences with the startups. Um, so in this process, um, these personas help us uh, to identify different people within the teams. Um, and uh, this at the end helps us um, to to make our coaches a bit better. So I would say it's an instrument we we use for the coaches um, and they can then use it for working with the startups individually. Um, and also, um, you know, sometimes it's a very good thing if you, if you recognize, okay, um, there's a certain person um, that reminds me on the Sarah Scientist um, uh, persona we have and now I have to coach a, a company uh, where a person like this is in and 
as a coach, I could then say, you know, it's it's something very typical. Um, it's it's not a bad thing necessarily, uh, but you remind me on that persona. Um, just be aware of these of these facts or of this tendency that is within the persona and that others or how others may per, um, perceive you. And um, so it can be something um, that is eye-opening for them in a coaching process. It's not something you show them once and say, okay, which persona are you? Um, it's something that really needs to be guided and, and, and it can really help in a coaching process to make people aware of their strengths and weaknesses. Because I guess a lot of these tendencies, they're not set in stone. So if you can identify them early and say, hey, watch out for this. See if you can catch yourself whenever you're doing this yep. thing and maybe encourage a little bit more of these other strengths that you know need to come to the front a little bit more. So I, that's, a, that's a very interesting tool that you've created to do that. Um, but that's, uh, that's going to do it for us today. So uh, thank you. Eric, for coming on the show. This was a fascinating discussion and I love the personas and I'm going to try and do my best to get these out into the world because I think it's a really good generalizing tool that you can use, especially for yourself. I know I've kind of taken a look at them and brought a bit of that inside me and been like, I, I should watch out for this just in case, especially the tendency to do too many things at the same time. That's something I've been dealing with my whole <laughs> life. And and. Yeah, it, it's good to be reminded you of. You know, and, that, and that's what they are made for. Yeah, to be to be reminded on your strengths and weaknesses and to reflect about yourself. Am I one of these or have do I have that tendency to be one of these? Um, and I would even hope that uh, the number of these personas maybe grows. So Timo, if you or maybe someone of the listeners have uh, some ideas uh, of personas we we could add here i would be very happy uh, to share them in the community um, and uh, to build additional ones because i think uh, it could be a helpful tool and that uh, uh, can help the community and if the community has some ideas how to expand this i'm very open and looking forward for your feedback that's an interesting idea i i think i feel a contest coming on <laughs> but uh We'll talk about that much later into the future. For now, thank you again, Eric. This was great. Thank you. And thanks for inviting me. Thanks, everybody, for listening and watching today. As Eric said, if you have any ideas for further personas, then please get in touch. You can find us on LinkedIn or send us an email at info at startupknockout.com. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on all our social media channels. We'll see you in the ring.